Welcome to Houston Sports Talk with your host, Robert Land. Thanks for checking into the best Houston sports podcast. Robert Long with Sports Radio 610, Sean Bajani. If you're new to the party, welcome aboard. 45 years in journalism between the two of us. 35 covering sports in the Houston area. And later in the show, we're going to hit the comeback of an Astro favorite or potential comeback. But Sean, the Texans with two scrimmages against the Dolphins. Are scrimmages more compelling than preseason games? What do you think? Yeah, definitely. Uh, there's There was a time where I would have thought about that a little bit longer, but it's uh, after taking one in yesterday, it's 100% more compelling. It's better reps, more quality reps for the starters, for, for really everybody, for the twos as well, twos and threes. And here's the reason why. You know, look, Stroud only got 11 reps in the preseason game last week, and you never know what the opposition is doing. In joint practices, it's best on best. It's 11 on 11 at all times. They do about four different team periods, and it's just boom, 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 boom. If you screw up a series, you screw up a drive, you want to work on something, you need to see a different look, you can go right back out there and do it. It's a controlled environment, and that's what you'll hear every coach across the league. You've heard it plenty from D'Amico leading up to these joint practices. That's why it's so important to them. Controlled because you're keeping your quarterback safe and upright, and controlled in the sense that you know your ones are going to get the reps that you wish you could afford to give them in the preseason without super risk of injury and things like that. Now, look, Taron Armstead, the Dolphins Pro Bowl starting left tackle, he went down with a leg injury. That kind of stuff is going to happen, which, you know, he dodged a bullet. He's okay. At least that's what he told reporters. He'll be good for week one. And the Texans seemingly made it out of both of these practices uh, very healthy as well. But we already know, at least with their offensive line, that they've suffered, you know, some soft tissue stuff already with a couple of three different guys in training camp. That stuff's going to happen. But in terms of, you know, the hard hits, controlling the environment and that route and getting the real looks that you need to get from a coaching staff and from your ones on a player level, it's 100% the best. And I I would be surprised if we didn't see teams doing more of these as the NFL and football really kind of continue to evolve and move away from preseason altogether. Is there any explanation why the coaches seem less afraid of injuries in scrimmages than they are in these you know, fake games, I guess. I, I just didn't make any sense to me. You can control it in the sense, you know, with your quarterbacks and, and things like that a little bit better. I mean, quarterbacks are off limits, just like they used to be back in the day in high school and in college, you know, your red shirts, your red hats, don't touch the guys. You know, if you break through, throw your hands up, let them finish a play. That's easy. In terms of everybody else, look, it's going to be like if you're hurting yourself running and nobody's really making any tackles out there. Um, you're thudding guys up. You can really gauge like where a guy is coming from and where he's going in terms of like angle tackling, pursuit, things like that in a controlled environment. And players understand, and you could see it, they're not going 110 miles per hour, 110% trying to make a tackle. They're looking to get in position and they're going to thud you up, wrap up. It's pretty rare outside of like, you know, in the trenches where you're going to see guys take take somebody to the ground. Let's go to our one-minute drill. Everybody, hopefully, is uh, starting to get into this. And, Sean, uh, we're going to do some Texans, and then we're going to do some Astros in the one-minute drill. So a little bit of both. Uh, I'm going to reset the clock here to one minute. It's moving on me. But uh, here we go. The first question is, 
C.J. Stroud was named Saturday's starter. But, Sean, did Damian Pierce say something that was kind of concerning about C.J. Stroud? Yeah. Uh, today, in his availability at the podium, Damian Pierce kind of slid it in there when he was talking about his quarterback, um, you know, what the joint practices were like, how he's coming along. And he'd said – CJ kind of gets tongue-tied in the huddle in, in giving plays to uh, to the team. And that is maybe a little bit concerning because you're talking about a guy who's been pretty invested and involved in the playbook for the better part of the last three months. And so the verbiage and relaying a play, if that's the case, and it's prevalent enough to where a guy like Damian Pierce would even think to mention that, when he's you know talking about his quarterback is a little concerning, but I'm not going to say it's a big time issue. Let's see how things look on Saturday and the rest of this preseason, because to this point, he's gotten his guys up to the line of scrimmage, gotten the ball off on time and gotten everybody lined up. Well, all right, great stuff. Um, hadn't heard that one at all. That's an interesting one. All right, let's get to the next one. Um, one minute on the clock again. We saw the starting offensive line in the Dolphins' scrimmage. Are they looking any better? Uh, the Dolphins' offensive line, or do you mean the Texans? The Texans' no, offensive the line? Texans' offensive line. I don't yeah, care about the, Te- the Dolphins' offensive line. <laughs> okay. Sorry. Yeah, I was going to say. Um, well, yeah, the Texans' offensive line, they had a couple of rough days at practice. Um, Thursday, you know, it was probably the worst. Wednesday, I wasn't thrilled about it, but it was pretty evident that C.J. Stroud was, you know, being flushed from the pocket. And some of that, look, uh, his inability to find receivers in a timely manner was maybe on him for holding the ball a little bit too long, maybe just not on the same page with with his offense. But the Dolphins' pass rush dominated the Texans' offensive line today. And um, I'm not going to say that's concerning. Ultimately, I think it's a good thing because you got to see a lot of success Wednesday versus not so much Thursday. And, you know, the true tell, at least, you know, what you can gauge from a preseason game, we'll see on Saturday. But the offensive line, I am concerned. And there are a lot of other things that we really need to discuss when it comes to the Texans offensive line. All right. We can come back to the offensive line in a bit. But uh, let's go to um, Tank Dell, who is still killing it out there. Is he wide receiver one, Sean? Man, as of right now, yeah. I mean, what's define wide receiver one? You know, the guy that you're going to look to uh, to get the ball the most to, right? The guy that's going to make plays for you, the guy that you need to move the sticks um, on passing downs when you have to have a first down. Tank Dell's been that guy. Tank Dell's been the guy as a red zone target. He caught three touchdowns on Wednesday and a couple more on Thursday, and he's doing it in spectacular fashion. I mean, the guy's getting open, stays open, and he's done it against some of the Dolphins' best, uh, you know, defensive backs. You know, ultimately, I think, and this is not like a de facto, okay, you can have it. I think it's earned. I think Nico Collins is going to be that guy. I think he should be that guy. And I think, you know, any any all any offensive coordinator in the league would look to get your biggest and best guy to stretch the field, the ball, a good red zone target. He's proven, you know, his route running ability with these new route concepts. I like Collins to set up Dell and vice versa. So you're saying Nico Collins is the big play threat for the Texans right now. And that's exactly the verbiage that D'Amico Ryan's used today. I think uh, he's absolutely a big play threat and has been, 
you know, a, a big play threat in training camp. And it really showed off again, opportunity again to go up against different defensive backs. I mean, I just watched him smoke uh, Dolphins cornerback with a very difficult name to pronounce today. But it was like literally Ferrari versus Toyota Camry. Like, you know who's going to win. And about five yards into uh, Collins's route on a go, it was just zzzz. Like, he just blazed past them in a beautifully perfect thrown ball from C.J. Stroud. Caught it in stride for a touchdown. All right, next question. Can you find ways for Tank and Mechie to be on the field at the same time, or has Mechie shown you enough to deserve that? Because we know you want Tank on the field as much as possible. Man, you know, I kind of said this a couple of weeks ago. Like, if you didn't know Robert Woods was on the Texans, like – you're like, hey, who's that number two guy? Like, you, you really wouldn't have even cared to ask who, who it was. Uh, but Woods has emerged the last couple of weeks as a real target, and he's made plays. He's shown the propensity to get open and to be a factor in the pass game. I feel like John Mechie's kind of disappeared the last week or so, man. Um, I don't see him doing too much out there. I don't see him being targeted too much. It's been Tank. It's been Nico. It's been Noah Brown. We've seen Xavier Hutchinson get some targets and come up with the ball all the time, you know, victim of some overthrows and stuff like that. But I feel like Mechie's towards the bottom in terms of this wide receiver depth chart. So I don't know if it's a real question to ask who's going to get on the field at the same time between Mechie and Tank versus maybe Woods and Tank. Uh, and hell, Steven Sims, to me, has had a better camp the last few weeks than John Mechie. All right, next up, um, how did the secondary look against one of the more dangerous wide receiving cores in the NFL, the Dolphins wide receiving core? Excellence probably too strong, but it's not a stretch to say they looked really freaking good. Uh, Jalen Petrie from day one, I mean, heck, even last year, you know, he looks like he's going to be a perennial pro bowler if he's healthy. The guy's just a ball hawk. He's flying all over the place, making plays, involved in almost everything through the air and even in the run game. You know, he's coming up and just uh, completing a pile and things like that. Derek Stingley had a really good day on Thursday. Uh, A couple of passes batted down, uh, other good contests. Uh, I think he had a couple of interceptions, one for sure. Uh, on Thursday. And, you know, Steven Nelson's been a star in the secondary for the Texans. And Jimmy Ward is, again, like Petrie, involved in everything, not afraid to lay the wood. He's had a couple of hard hits, you know, and before the Dolphins came in, a couple of really hard hits on his own guys, Tank Dell being one of them who got up gimpy. Uh, I think it was earlier this week or last week. Uh, it's They're, they're going to be serious, man. They are uh, they're scary. All right, let me give you – an extra minute because I know you got more on this offensive line for the Texans. And, you know, I'm just curious, like we know Kenyon green is a concern. Are there other holes on this offensive line right now uh, besides Kenyon green? Titus Howard's the obvious one, you know, um, with the Texans committed nearly $120 million to three players over the course of the last six months and guaranteed money, Laramie Tunsil, Titus Howard, and Shaq Mason. Uh, there's no reason to put so much faith in the Juice Scruggs right now. I personally need to see a lot more from him in terms of pass protection. Um, I feel like that's where a lot of the pressures have been coming is up the middle. And look, D'Amico spoke to that you know, today. Um, from a defensive standpoint, understanding what his offensive line has to do, 
pressure. They want to get to the quarterback as soon as possible. The best route to that is up the middle, the A and B gaps. And Juice Scruggs has got to be a better pass protector. Kenyon Green, I don't know that that guy's actually in great football shape right now. And the ramp-up period is long and over with with him. He's having problems finishing a practice without having been rotated with Michael Dieter and, you know, Sutherland at the guard position. And maybe it's just to get looks, maybe not. But I'm worried about those two guys particularly. George Fant, that dude's a large man. He's a beast. He's going to win that match one-on-one more times than not. What's going to be interesting to see is just how strategic defensive lines have to get with guys like Laramie Tunsil, Shaq Mason, George Fant. But I really worry about that left center portion of that line for the Texans because I, I don't think you can rest your hat on either one of those guys right now. Uh, yeah, real quick question. Um, and I, I just I'm curious about Jonathan Grenard. We haven't talked much about him yet. You know, he was really one of the few guys left from the pre-Nick Casario years. Yeah. What do you think of Jonathan Grenard? Is, is he turned a corner this year, or is D'Amico getting the most out of him uh, that we've seen? Yeah, Grenard's had a good couple of days of practice, uh, made some really good plays today, some pressures. Um, you know, he's very involved and effective, uh, disruptive, you know, is the word that D'Amico likes to use. Um, he's healthy, which is the biggest thing for him. That's obviously been his biggest detractor, you know, led the team in sacks uh, a couple of years ago. And last year, you know, with him going down, um, you know, in the middle portion of the season, Larry, Laramie Tunsil, um, Jerry, Jerry Hughes kind of, you know, took that on us as the team's best and most consistent pass rusher. I think this team is deep at the edge rusher position. Um, it's going to be interesting to see going forward how D'Amico mixes and matches, you know, those combinations, um, you know, between Hughes and Anderson, Grenard. Uh, they've got some guys that have all really done a good, good job in camp so far and have shown the propensity to be uh, disruptors and consistently effective in the pass rush. Yeah, I, I, Grenard's just somebody that I, I feel like we've, have we've avoided a little bit but yeah he's he's all of a sudden uh, at feel, least looking a little bit better i feel i feel that way too but i also think he's kind of the victim of circumstance you know uh we're we're talking about guys like will anderson and a lot of people are watching him um and when he's not on the field you know we're okay let's we're moving away to the other side of the field and we're going to watch the quarterbacks work or we're going to watch the receivers work. And I think he's kind of getting lost in the shuffle a little bit. Look, has he, has he, uh, you know, really flashed and jumped off of the screen in the film room, you know, for a lot of coaches, look, maybe not, but I think the guy's just been consistent. You know, I, there hadn't been any poor reports in regarding his play. And to be honest with you, what little I have seen of him on the field, uh, I like what I see. Looks to be moving well, setting the edge, um, and affecting affecting the run game in a positive way. And that's something that the Texans have done a really good job of across the board, particularly in these joint practices with the Dolphins. You know, they've they've really and look the preseason game. I think this is trending in the right direction here. Albeit preseason games, they held the Patriots to seventy eight yards on the ground, and you know, if not for the late fourth quarter drive by the Pats the other night, those numbers would look even that much better. They did a good job against the Dolphins in their run game uh, these last two days. So I think it's certainly trending upward. And look, I even broached a question today: is it out of the is it out of the realm of possibility that this team goes? 
like from 31st, two straight years, I think it was, or maybe 32nd last year in the worst run defense in the entire league to maybe not just breaking the top 20, but maybe taking a look at the top 15 at the end of the season. Yeah, that'd be fantastic. And I, I want to get opinions out there from everybody that listens to us. Do you like the one minute drill? Let us know that 10 second on the clock left for Sean. That That's where you hear the ding if you're listening on audio. So if you hear that ding, he's got 10 seconds to sort of wrap things up. Uh, let's go to the Astros and we'll keep the one minute drill going. And Sean, if Michael Brantley comes back, which guy do you most fear gets squeezed out of this lineup? Most fear? Mauricio Dubon. The obvious guy that gets squeezed out of this rotation and misses some playing time is probably Jake Myers. Um, and I'm not too fearful of that by any stretch because even a Michael Brantley that's not 100%, you have to feel like wipe the floor with uh, anything that Jake Myers has given you. And his, his problem's obviously been, you know, consistency at the plate. Certainly we're not talking about his defensive capabilities in the field, but uh, I worry about Mauricio Dubon. You know, this guy's been a consistent bat. Uh, he's a guy you feel comfortable with defensively, throwing him basically anywhere in the field. And I feel like it's just going to be a turnstile between left field, center field when Brantley does come back. And Dusty's really going to have to figure out a way to get creative and and find ways to keep Dubon's bat in the lineup, keep it fresh, keep him somewhat consistent. Um, <clears throat> I worry about <clears> – <throat> Oh, you got to give me three more seconds for having to cough on that one. I I, I worry about, <laughs> I worry a little bit about, um, you know, just Dubon being relegated to almost like an Aledmus DS specific role. And some guys are best suited for that. I think Dubon, at least for this year, and that's what all that matters at this point, is best suited for being in the lineup consistently because he's been fantastic at the plate. I, I just feel like there was a big overstatement. I think you're still with the mindset of Mauricio Dubon first two months of the season. Mauricio Dubon is basically who Mauricio Dubon's been his entire career. He's got a 661 OPS, 263 batting average. He's been fine, but I mean, it's not like, oh, you're going to miss that. You mentioned the guy, Yonder Diaz, basically is getting his at-bats outside of maybe once a week or twice a week at catcher. He's getting any extra at-bats as a DH. And when I look at things, when Brantley comes back, you just got to rotate DH left field between Brantley and Jordan. And you've got no choice if you want to get Brantley and Jordan both in the lineup. One of those guys has got to play DH unless, you know, I, I don't know, Sean, are we going to be shocked and, and just like dumbfounded when Michael Brantley ends up playing first base? Is that actually going to happen or is that realistic? Is it, I mean, at this point, especially – you know, you got John Singleton right now. I mean, is you play Michael Brantley at first. They won't, they won't play Yonder Diaz at first base. Let's remember this. Yonder Diaz played in the minor leagues. He got a good amount of innings. I, I want to say I, I, I looked it up. It was 440 innings and had five errors. But they don't want to touch him at first base. I mean, Dusty says, oh, I don't trust him, whatever. So you're going to trust Michael Brantley at first base? Instead, that basically hasn't even been on the field in 13 months and has been an outfielder his whole career. To me, it's the obvious. Like, I'm scared to death. Yonder Diaz is down to one or two a week. And he's, you know, we, we know he's one of the best hitters on the team. Taking Diaz away from the time that he would have, you know, typically behind the plate is probably a little bit of a concern. I mean, I, I know Dusty's clearly decided to go with Maldi more times than not with Yiner, but he is the future. And I think there is some 
elements, some degree that Dusty and the Astros have to treat that with respect. So any opportunity that you have to get Yiner behind the plate and handling these pitchers would only benefit you, not just now, but certainly in the future. And look, it's it's funny because once upon a time ago, earlier this season, you didn't have options at first base. And, you know, with Abreu down with injury and them kind of shelving him for a little bit, John Singleton's been called up. He stepped in at first base a little bit, and we know Jordan in a pinch could play it if need be. They have other guys that they can put in there, but Brantley, you know, look, he's in his on his second different rehab stint in the second game of this second rehab stint Thursday night. I don't know if he's playing first base down in Sugarland or not. I don't know where he is in the lineup, but I know he's playing. I know he took reps in spring training before stuff hit the fan. Could he fill in in a pinch? Yeah, maybe so, but you know what? One of the plays of the year at shortstop from Jeremy Pena a couple of nights ago against the Marlins came with John Singleton at first base, and he did a heck of a job of digging that ball out of the dirt and giving Jeremy Pena the dun na na opportunity. So I feel pretty good as long as Singleton's bat is relatively close to what it's been to give him this you know, second shot with the Astros. That gives you a really good option. The thing that gets very, very tricky is – you do throw Yiner Diaz into the equation, and then you ask yourself, well, what about Michael Brantley if he is producing? What about Mauricio Dubon? Because he's an important guy for us and has been to this point. We're going to need his bat to stay pretty fresh and reliable off the bench, especially come postseason time. You need a big pinch hit opportunity or a defensive replacement late in the game, whatever the case may be. So, Who, 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 is, who is anybody going to pinch hit for? Because if your lineup <laughs> in the postseason is – the best batters out there, which, you know, we know who those guys are. And the only guy to pinch hit for is typically Maldi. And Maldi doesn't get pinch hit for now in the seventh, eighth, ninth inning in games that are close. And there's guys on base and Maldi's like 11 for 74 with runners in scoring position. And he doesn't get pinch hit for. So who's who's Dubon pinch hitting for? Because that's the only guy. It's Maldonado would be the one guy you would pinch hit for. I don't care about perfect, Maldi. In the, Maldi didn't even, we, we didn't have Maldi in the postseason last year. He didn't do much of anything in the postseason last year. Sure, sure. I mean, in, in a perfect world. But, you know, I'm thinking, you know, if, if somebody was to get a little banged up, somebody to get injured, you know, he needs to come in as a defensive replacement, stuff like that. Things happen like that in the postseason. We'd seen it before. You know, Jake Myers going down a few years ago with the shoulder in Chicago against the White Sox. Um Look, it's it's not going to be perfect. And look, Dubon, he's relegated to this role pretty much right now that he's been used to to this point of his career, you know, outside of, you know, being thrust in and thrown to the fire and being a starter every single day when Altuve went down with the broken thumb and the WBC, the job was his, right? And it's just been a pretty easy fit. And we were all blessed and lucky to get the type of production out of him. But I know it's not going to be perfect. It's just the guy that's had such a great season, the best of his career, the most productive and the most fun that he's ever had. And he's he like, probably needs some rest at this point, if we're being maybe. honest, because he's just about every single day with all the injuries so i don't yeah. know let's throw, let's go to the next uh what on the clock let's go to the one minute again and as it stands now sean is christian javier in your playoff rotation and let me just throw this out there fromber verlander jp france they've all got to be in at one two three i would think uh, does javier beat out hunter brown and, and jose arquiti for that four spot what's going to, mm-hmm. to happen there not right now, but you just mentioned the order. It's Fromber, JV, and JP France. There's your one, two, three right now. In terms of what have you done for me lately and shown any kind of ability to figure things out, be consistent, 
it's Hunter Brown. Hunter Brown's got to be the fourth guy. He's been the most consistent of the bunch. Now, small sample size for Jose Urquidy, who had, you know, his uh, second outing since coming back from injury. Really good. Got you through five, you know, kept you in a ball game, good enough to win. I think he ended up losing that ball game, or the Astros did, uh, two to one the other night. But ultimately, it's <laughs> you got to score some runs. And with this lineup, you expect to score runs. Who do I think gives you the best opportunity to win most consistently right now out of Christian Javier, Jose Arquiti, or Hunter Brown? It's Hunter Brown without a question. It's not a doubt in my mind. I know people are concerned about that because you're relying so much on this veteran and you question how much does a guy like JV have left. And you're relying so much on the young guys, JP France and Hunter Brown. What can they really give you? You're, you're relegated to a guy that maybe wasn't prepared to be the ace of this ball club this year in Fromber. I don't really think that's a fair question, but that's a pretty solid forward. You could do a heck of a lot worse, Robert, than going Fromber, JV, JP France, and Hunter Brown in a playoff rotation. Yeah, I don't know that Fromber wasn't prepared. I think it's just – it's been a lot of innings the last few years on all of these guys, and I think it's caught up to a lot of them including Justin Verlander. We've seen a little bit less of a Justin Verlander uh, over the last year or so. And, and, and I think it's caught up to him because he just can't strike guys out like he used to. And we saw it again against the Marlins this week. Yeah. It just seemed like, you know, you give a five nothing lead. Typically you're like, well, we're, we're on easy street. And Justin Verlander is battling out there to get, get your four or five innings, which is not the Justin Verlander we've come to expect. As far as Hunter Brown is concerned, yeah, I mean, you and I would have him ahead of Christian Javier this year. My concern is, Dusty, it's like he, he is so blind when it comes to what's going on in front of him as opposed to what's happened the last three or four years. That's my, that's my only fear, Sean, is that right there. Yeah, yeah. And look, the, you got 40 ball games left, and so you're looking at maybe seven, seven more starts for a guy like Christian Javier to put something together, figure things out, and try to regain some of that sustainability, consistency, work deeper into ball games. You ask similar questions about Hunter Brown. You know, what about his sustainability in terms of his inning threshold, his workload? What sort of, how much load management could you possibly have for a guy? I mean, it, it can be done. You could get this guy theoretically deep into the postseason as your fourth starter, depending on how things shake out. He might even be a good three option for you, to be honest with you. But you could get him towards the end of the season at the pinnacle, you know, World Series champions again and have him right around that 140 inning mark. But you have to get pretty creative and you're also going to have to get some guys to step up to finish this regular season out for you and get you deeper into some of these ball games and, and give you some more quality starts. Jose Arquiti is a big factor in that. Christian Javier just trying to figure out the best of what he's got left in this regular season is a big factor in that as well. Yeah, you've got to get either the old Christian Javier or the old Fromber Valdez to come back because the old Justin Verlander is gone. He's 40 years old. It's not going to happen. So one of these other two hey. guys really has to return to form. You'll take something in between of what Fromber gave you two starts ago versus his last start. And when he some way managed to get through well, seven innings and give up six it, earned it, runs. Really, <laughs> you know, it's been outside yeah. of that no hitter. Yeah. It hasn't been good for now for a pretty good while now. It's been over a month, I think, where he's he's really uh, been struggling. Let's go to the last one minute drill question. And it has to do with Rafael Montero, whose last 14 games. He's put up a 1.84 ERA. 
and a 104 batting average against. Do you trust him again, Sean, or does it matter that this has mostly been done in low leverage situations over the last month? That's the key. Don't ask me to trust a guy that has put up those kinds of numbers in, you know, extremely favorable circumstances. You paid this guy a lot of money for what he did for your ball club last year in the highest of leverage situations. He was a guy that you could absolutely count on and a part of, you know, one of the most dominant bullpens you'll ever see in Major League Baseball. And to come back this year and and be so poor at, at just being consistent, getting outs, figuring out, uh, you know, the, look, the strikeout to walk ratio, that kind of stuff, like you can live with that. But the dude's just flat out gotten hit. And he's just serving it up for guys and has imploded time and time again. I need to see him do what he's done against stiff competition when the spotlight is on in these high leverage situations. And thankfully for the Astros and him specifically, you got the opponents coming up. You've got two two big series with the Red Sox that are still a threat coming up. You've got the Yankees coming up. Uh, and look, you've got a team that plays you very, very well that you're about to start a series with tomorrow at home against the Seattle Mariners. So there's going to be plenty of opportunities against some pretty good opponents to where he can still show what he's hopefully very capable of doing and really needed by his ball club to, I think, take them deep into the postseason. Yeah, I agree with you. I, I have to see him in some more high leverage situations. It's interesting, Sean, when it's a blowout where the game isn't close, there is one set of guys that come out of the bullpen. And when the game is close, there's another set of guys. It's like the Astros bullpen is the haves and the have nots. And when the game's close, we see Presley, we see Abreu, we see Graveman, I I think a little bit now. And as he gets a little bit more comfortable, I think you're going to see him. And of course, Hector Neris. Then when the game isn't close, it's Montero, Ryan Stanek. And, you know, right now it's Parker Mashinsky. Yeah. And he he looked good the other night. Yeah, the one guy that I would say we would be a little bit on the fence on is Phil Maton because he was looking good for the first half of the season. Recently, it hasn't been so much, so I don't know where he fits into this hierarchy. But I I think with Graveman here, I think he moves behind Graveman, and he's more in the have-nots than he is in the haves right now. I I think it's fair to just say TBD going forward in terms of the value that he brings um, and how much you can trust him. Look, he had game a couple days ago. He came in that real close ball game. The Astros won 6-5. Came in, needed to get one out, got the strikeout, boom, done. Look, that's about as high a leverage a situation that he's probably pitched in in the last, I don't know, two or three weeks, it feels like. But he got the job done against a club that very easily, you know, has shown the propensity to come back on anybody and almost did the other night against the Astros before they busted out with six runs in the seventh inning. That in and of itself kind of makes me feel a little bit better, at least positioning yourself in these last 40 ball games. The fact that this offense, as they're about it, as full of strength as you're going to get uh, in terms of guys that you really should be able to rely upon. Sorry, Michael Brantley. But this feels like the ball club of 2019 of 2017, that offense that, you know what, like they could get hot at any time, like white hot. And that's what I thought of the other night when they put six runs on the board in the seventh inning. It just happened in a flash. They did it, you know, with timely hitting. They did it by knocking the ball out of the ballpark. They did it by hitting the gaps. They did it with good base running, smart base running. 
And so that makes me feel a little bit better about, you know what? Maybe this is sustainable in a year in which, you know, they, they've struggled to get consistent pitching, both the starting rotation and the bullpen. This team is that talented to where they could overcome that. I know the postseason is a little bit different than the regular season, but I'm just trying to get in the best possible position to make that postseason run right now. Yeah, I just have a hard time believing this is going to be different from other postseasons. Usually postseasons are decided with pitching. Usually if you've got that offense, that's some juggernaut offense, it runs into some hot pitching staff like a hot goalie in hockey or something like that. And it's really hard to overcome that. And that's why I keep going back to Javier and Fromber. And you need those guys to somehow return to the form. And Fromber, it's, it's, it's not so much the form from last year. It's just the form from a month ago. And Christian Javier, you know, my, my concern is beyond concern at this point because I, I just don't see – a real uh, pathway to get from being this bad for a few months out of the year to get it all, you know, turned around and everything like that. I mean, Sean, it's just, you know, the thing about this offense, Sean is, you know, we talk about it being kind of hot and cold, but when it all is said and done there, last I checked uh, just a couple of days ago, they're sixth and run scored sixth and run scored. So that's pretty darn good considering you've missed a lot of time with Altuve, a lot of time with Jordan, and you haven't had Michael Brantley the whole year. That's some big bats that you've been missing, and and they still done. It. Also, uh, they've had uh, Yanner Diaz on the on the Dusty Baker injured list, so he is not allowed to been allowed to play half the season because Dusty has had him on his personal injury list. So that's pretty good what their yeah. offense has done despite all that. You know, I saw some pretty attractive numbers uh, last night. I think it was by a guy on uh, Twitter, Tony Adams. He comes up with some really good facts and figures for the Astros and did a comparison of Jose Altuve in the leadoff spot versus everybody else that has been in that spot in the lineup all season long. And the numbers are ridiculous. Altuve literally has half the amount of plate appearances as everybody else pulled together. And the production, I mean, is clear the the plus weighted runs created from Jose Altuve is something like 178 versus like 65 for everybody else it's just stupid when that guy's in the lineup he is legitimately the truth a game changer and the Astros have so many of those guys that you're seeing continuously produce really at the right times they try to battle with these dang rangers just like a mosquito they won't go away they just won't relinquish that top spot i'm talking about your alex Bregman's, your jordan alvarez's your kyle tucker's i mean the numbers that all of these guys have produced when jordan first went down with that injury and he's been back for 19 games now and you're seeing it continue when this club clicks on all cylinders and guys are producing and they're all feeling good at the same time they're dangerous as anybody else out there even what looks to be like a really super dominant Atlanta Braves team in the National League boy I hope somebody knocks them off before the Astros hopefully can see them in the World Series but we'll just we'll worry about that point when we get there I feel really good about it and I'm with you ultimately I'd way rather rely on, you know, hot, consistent pitching versus out slugging anybody, especially in the postseason. All right. Last thing I wanted to hit on was this NBA schedule release and the Rockets schedule coming out. And typically, I don't care much about the NBA schedule. It doesn't matter to me as much as, say, the NFL schedule because everybody in the NBA is playing the same teams, right? And they've taken away a lot of the back-to-backs and some of that sort of stuff. 
But this is what I do care about, Sean. This is what I do think is interesting. And by the way, it is kind of fun that they're starting the season off. The first two games are, are against Orlando and San Antonio, which means against Paulo and against Wembenyana. And why is that sort of fun is that, you know, those two guys were chosen over Amen Thompson and Jabari Smith. So those guys might come out with a little bit. I'm talking about the Rockets players might come out with a little bit of like, hey, we want to show you that uh, we were just as good as those two top picks. However, what's interesting about the schedule, Sean, is home games early in the season. That's what I look at. And with the Rockets, they start off two games on the road, those two games, but then they have seven straight home games. And what I have noticed when watching the NBA for close to 50 years is that when you have an easier schedule early in the season and you can get off to a little bit better of a start, there's a momentum a lot of times when you're a young team specifically, as the Rockets are. And last year, they had this terribly weighted road schedule early on. And once they, once you're a young team and you start losing games, it gets hard to get out of it. It gets hard to get motivated, play defense. We saw that a lot with the Rockets the last couple of years. But it's just this, it's almost like an avalanche that's coming at you as opposed to now they're going to have some home. There's tough home games early in the season. But the NBA schedule is just tough these days. I mean, there's so many good yeah. teams, especially out West. And so I think that's going to matter. Two road games, yes. But then they followed up with seven home games, Sean. That's a big deal. It is a big deal. I, I think it's a great point by you in getting, you know, so much home cooking early in the season with a new, very young team, obviously, different demands, rightfully so, from Ime Yudoka. I saw, you know, I was looking at two other stretches of the schedule as well. Um, you know, around the time where, you know, people say the NBA season really begins around Christmas, um, there's a stretch where the Rockets play 11 of 15 games at home, uh, you know, from December 11th through January 6th. And I think that's really good timing for a little bit of home cooking as well, uh, because you kind of know who you are. You know, you, you know who at least you're trying to be rather at that point in time. And, uh, you know, playing a lot of home games, you know, 11 to 15 could be pretty good medicine. One part I do worry about is going to the all-star break. They got a lot of road games going to the all-star break. This team could be huffing and puffing and, uh, you know, sluggish. And we'll just see how conditioned, uh, you know, how many dogs they really have on this squad going into the all-star break. They got 13 to 20 games. There's <laughs> they depth. got depth. There's depth. They got There's depth. depth. And, wonder- and, and the other thing is you don't mind a little back half diff- more difficult schedule if you're the Rockets because – what you expect is this team is going to take some time to get develop some chemistry. You got a new coach. You got, you know, two big new starters into the mix with Van Vliet and Dylan Brooks. You know, you're, you're totally revamping. The, and remember how slow Udoka's team started off in Boston when they went to the finals. And then he got that team going in the right path around December. Jan- I think it was around January, actually. They really got him going. And that to me, that's good that you know, if you're going to have a tougher part of the schedule, you'd rather be it in the back half. And I think the Rockets will be a much better team and, and Udoko will have a much more going in the right direction. Yeah, I think it's a good point. I think it's a good point. I like that. Um, what, let me ask you a question. What do you think about the 14 sets of back-to-backs for the Rockets? Do you happen to know? Because I remember this usually being a thing back in the day. Uh, it felt like the Rockets had more sets of back-to-backs than just basically anybody else in the entire darn league. Rockets got 14 of them. And I know the NBA schedule-wise has kind of, you know, tried to lighten up on that for everybody. But I'd be interested to see, you know, what that looks like from the Rockets compared to everybody else. 
yeah, I haven't seen what the other guys look like. So that's what matters is how they compare to some of the other other. I, you know, my feeling is, and I've said this before, I would, I, I, I just want the schedule shortened so we can just eliminate the back to backs. And I like the idea that somebody brought up that just said, Hey, look, let's do two games a week. Every game is either a Wednesday, a Saturday or a Tuesday, or I'm sorry, Wednesday, Sunday, or Tuesday, Saturday, or something like that to where you space out the games. There's never anything close to a back-to-back. You do like 60 games or something and you make the NBA like two days a week to where everybody's thinking that's, that's NBA days in the same way that we think Sunday is NFL or Sunday and Monday is NFL. Let's make the NBA two days a week. And so where everybody's, you know, kind of zoned into the NBA at that same time. And I I think that would be just a a huge deal with you. We would see guys, we we wouldn't have to deal with this whole, you know, uh, management of, you know, guys where, you you know, they just don't play because it's a back-to-back or something like that, or two games and four five nights or something. I mean, that's a, that's a pretty good thought, you know, uh, out loud. I like it. Uh, I'd like to see it on paper. Uh, I don't think you'd want anything on Sunday and competing with the NFL, if at all possible. But, um, you know, like a Saturday or something like if you could find out the optimal time in which you get the most natural set of eyeballs on TV screens that would not be competing with the NFL. Is that Saturday? Is that Friday? Is that still Thursday where you'd technically be competing with the NFL? Well, but- they're they're going to be competing against the NFL whether it's Saturday or Sunday, but you want one of those on the weekend because, of course, Saturday, once the playoffs start, you're going to have, I think it's, what is it, three or four weeks where you're going to have NFL games on Saturday as well, not just Sunday. Yeah, so the you've got that issue. Right. Yeah. And, and yeah. You've, also got, you've also got them going against Saturday games in college football. Do you want to fight I mean, against college football like- for the first, like, month? it would just be fighting against college football for about a month and then it's over with. And yeah. but you, you you got everybody into a pattern of this is when the NBA is. And this is, you know, this t- today's the day I got to think NBA because it's instead of where, you know, I think in, in a lot of different stuff in the that we've got going on in the United States overall, one of our big issues is we think more is always better. And sometimes it's just not. Sometimes less is better. Give some give you. Give your your uh, fans something to wait for and kind of get up for, and you know, instead of like jam it down their throat every single night of the week. Yeah, no, it's a great thought, and I was just thinking too, like you know, what would prevent you from flipping it? You know, so what you got to compete with? I don't know how much really competition there would be versus college football. You know, uh, I mean, it would be on, but that's in large part during the day probably play your NBA games in the evening, but you know, once the NFL season's over with and the Super Bowl and everything's done, what would prevent you from flipping it? Okay. We're not playing on Saturdays anymore. We're going to move to Sundays and we'll move the game in the middle of the week up, you know, a day as well. So instead of playing on Tuesday, you play Wednesday, you know, something like that. I like the idea. I I think whoever had that idea, my hat's off to them. Now let's just see it uh, put into action because I think I could dig that. Yeah, there's always going to be something. You're going to be fighting against March Madness or fighting against the Masters or whatever. There's always something. But I think, you know, it's just about getting everybody into a routine of this is their day. This is the NBA's day. And yeah. it's two days a week. And it's and it would also just do the other thing is just we wouldn't have to worry about 
you know, load, I was trying to come up with the term load management. Load management is the term that, you know, people are just sick and tired of. And fans are tired of paying season tickets. And then when they, they're, they're out, oh, good, LeBron James coming into town that once one time a year. Oh, well, no, LeBron James isn't playing because it's load management. Yeah. Or Steph Curry isn't you know playing because it's load yeah. management. That's really ultimately what you would be doing this for is to prevent that sort of thing from happening. But I'm also thinking about if you relegated yourself to just two days of NBA action per week where everybody's playing on the same two days, in large part you're playing around the same time unless you started having these day games and stuff like that. And if you did, like who's able to watch them? What's the viewership look like in those specific markets? You know, like LA, New York, you know, your big ones. Um, I... I well, what's fun is everybody's playing that day. So if everybody's playing that day and you could line these schedules up, because you know what, if you're not a fan of like one team, and usually if you're a fan of one team, you're focusing on your team's games all through the week. You might catch a couple other games maybe, but probably not much. But the people that are just like, I'm an NBA fan. Well, this is great because on Tuesday and Saturday from about, Eight o'clock till 12 o'clock, I can go from one game to another and watch like the great endings in a bunch of different games because all the teams are playing. So you'll have like, what is it, 15 games? So you, you'll be able to just like flip over and go, oh, there's another ending. There's another ending. There's another ending. There's another ending. And you could watch that, you know, th- those nights and it just becomes like super fun to do that. Not to mention the fact that, you know, I think. It might be a little bit of fun for the betting fans too, like having it all on one one day. It's like a betting extravaganza. <laughs> yeah, for a guy that likes to do that, just doesn't do it as much as I, I would. I'd like to. Uh, yeah, I can only imagine how many heart attacks uh, <laughs> that would cause, like with so much action going on. But yeah, a lot of excitement too. I mean, the parlays that uh, would be in play. And uh, you not having to wait a day or two or three to see one through. Yeah, that'd be pretty fun. I'm, I'm here for it. I'd like to see something put together, at least informally. Yeah, there's a whole conversation with this, but that's just a little bit that I got on that. Saturday, we've got preseason, so tune in. We're going to have a, our live Texans uh, postgame show on Saturday. Looking forward to that. And a uh, big weekend for the Astros against the Mariners. So we'll be talking about that at some point next week. Uh, great to talk with you, Sean. We'll see you again just uh, a couple days. Yes, sir. Good stuff. Enjoyed it. You're listening to Houston Sports Talk. Hey, don't forget to support us by subscribing and commenting on YouTube. You can always listen to us on Spotify, Apple, or your favorite podcast app. Tell your friends about us and share our show links on social media. Spread the word, everybody. Thanks for listening.